Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. You will fail. So what? Everybody does. But your gym, your watch, your yoga pants, they pretend you won't. So when you miss a day, eat the pancakes. Give up on a workout? You failed? Seriously, what the hell? We're body. We've been a part of that too, but not anymore. At body, we're rejecting perfection and embracing reality. Not in a pizza Monday kind of way, in a loving your whole life kind of way. In a, this workout is fun and it's okay if I take a week off kind of way. In an, I'm eating healthy and it's okay if I indulge kind of way. In a, I like myself no matter what kind of way. Yeah, you will fail. We all will. But we're not going to let that be the end. You see that? We're already making progress. So let's keep going. We are Body. Start your free trial at body.com. That's B-O-D-I dot com. At Granger, we're for the ones who pay attention to every little detail. The ones who fuss, tinker, and sweat the small stuff. Because you know the tiniest thing can make the biggest difference when it comes to keeping business moving. We get it. We're the same way. Offering access to product experts to help you quickly and easily find what you need. So whatever your industry, you know you're always getting professional-grade products. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. From Nashville, Tennessee, welcome to Music City 911. I'm Rick Beasley, communications officer retired 40 years of Nashville experience. And I'm Brandon Hall with 20 in. Still going. How are you doing, man? I'm pretty good tonight. What about yourself? Oh, I tell you, I'm doing really good. And I noticed we've got some mighty smell good cooking on that Music City 911 stove tonight. What have you got on the burner for us? Well, starting out tonight, we're going to get into some uh, kind of industry news for us, for all mm-hmm. you 911 dispatchers out there. Something that we just recently did in the past couple of days uh, at the Nashville Center is we have a thing now called ASAP to PSAP. And what that is for us and what it's going to mean for uh, um, anybody who's not actually in the industry, uh, just to kind of get a little bit of a uh, backstory to it, we take a ton of alarm calls. Everybody out there you, you'll probably that's in the industry, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't know what the actual number is, but I'd probably say somewhere between 10 and 20% of the calls that we take are alarm calls of one, one thing or another. They could be burglar alarms from a house, a business. We could have... Uh, duress alarms from, from a house, uh, hold up alarms from businesses, fire alarms. There's any number of different alarms that we get and we take all of them. Uh, so in the past, what have happened is we'd have these alarm companies, they'd call us and, you know, in general, they, it's something, you know, depending on the, the actual type of call and everything, you're on the phone with these people, 45 seconds to about a minute and a half. And you do that a couple dozen times a day, that eats up a good portion of the day and a lot of your phone time. Well, what this new thing is going on is actually a software that they've handed out to all these different alarm companies. 
And when they actually receive the alarm from the house or whatever it is like that, they get the notification there and they end up typing it in or I'm not exactly sure how it ends up working. If they just, if it goes straight in their, their computer system, it sends it straight to our dispatch system and we never have to talk to anybody. So it saves a ton of time overall. I mean, even though it's each one of the calls is only, like I said, 30, 45 seconds, minute, minute and a half, whatever like that. If you do that dozens of times per day, it can really add up on the time that you have spent on these calls. And like I said, if you were to multiply that by how many people we actually have on the phones at any time in Nashville, it can be anywhere from we might have eight or nine people taking all the phone calls for Nashville. Sometimes we'll have 15 or more multiply that all times that many people. And that's a lot of phone time. So you're saving us all these different, co- the the phone calls coming in from it. And it, it really is going to save a ton of time for everybody in doing it. Uh, bees, I know that, you know, you've been there for a while and it's, it's probably one of those things that over the years that kind of just kind of nudged its way up and here recently that, that, uh, the, the internet has kind of become involved with it making it easier for them to send out and receive the, the alarm calls that and the cell service we have it's seen and it's cheaper too it seems like anybody that that has a you know cable system or anything like that now they can get an alarm it's it's just a few dollars more a month and it so uh, i don't know how many people in nashville have actual alarm systems in their house it seems like it's a lot though well the the thing that's huge to me is for all of you in the industry, when you have a storm, man, I mean, it, you, you're talking about being waylaid with this stuff. You are not I mean, joking. Oh, they will wear you out. And you've already got enough of the other calls coming in between, you know, it being, you know, wet outside, people wrecking everywhere, people getting hurt in wrecks. And now you've got the alarm, uh, alarm companies calling in too. So this is going to be huge to, to take resources and put them back, you know, in, in our seat where it needs to be rather than in theirs. Yeah. And that, that's a really good point that I, I wasn't even really thinking about because we haven't had a storm since this happened. Cause it's literally just happened this week that it's a, uh, you know, we've started out and it's not actually all the way done yet. They've, they've sent it out to, I think they said 12 or 13 alarm companies. Uh, five of them before I had my weekend uh, had jumped on it and, and they had actually started it. They rolled them out one at a time for those first five for the first, I think, day it was. And then I went on the weekend, so I'm not sure what happened after that. I noticed a substantial amount of uh, alarm traffic that, would, that had gone down. We still had some of them calling in because they haven't activated their systems yet. And some of them are the you know kind of bigger alarm companies like NCA and I think ADT. They were both on the list of ones that were you know, to be done. Well, one of the questions that I had is, is it going to end up being all of them? Because as you know, you've got different size alarm companies. Some of them are huge and the yeah. other ones, well, they might have a high, you know, a handful of customers or something. So is, is this going to be something that, that all of them are going to have to end up doing or, or they I, to- I think it's going to be, uh, the major ones more than anything. And I, I say that, uh, I, I, off the top of my head, I can't rattle off the names of every, everybody that has them, but um, I, I know that some of the smaller ones that, you know, they do have uh, alarms in, in Nashville. Uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, some of the smaller ones. There's one that's, uh, it's got a funny name. It's pretty catchy. Sherlock Holmes. So it, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. one. 
So yeah, that's uh, that's one that uh, I, don't, I don't know that they're going to be on board with this or not. Um, just because, I mean, just like you said, the the bigger ones they've got probably millions and millions of homes there and businesses they actually cover. But you know, the smaller ones they they may have a few thousand and just a few in Nashville. Well, it's not going to be the small ones that's going to put the load on your department. Exactly, it's going to be the big guys. So the big guys, if they're the you know the ones that it's concentrated on, that's okay. That's yeah, cool. and, and you know, like the the one I was mentioning, Sherlock Holmes. I might take one call from them every week or two, and that's about it, as opposed to NCA, ADT, um, Xfinity, you know, the, the really, really big alarm companies. I'm talking to them probably, you know, five, six times a day each. And, you know, then on top of that, you get the alarm call in, and, you know, we ask for a responder. They're calling back in with the responder information, or if they don't have that information, they'll have to still call and say we don't have a responder. They call back with us to, to say they cancel it. All that mess comes in. So one alarm call can turn into three or four of them from one site. And that's little bits of time that somebody else is suffering. Uh, I mean, I've, I use this example a few times. Can you imagine somebody calling in and, you know, saying their, their grandmother, they, they just walked in and found her stabbed in the back or something like that. And they can't get through the phone because, you know, somebody's alarm's going off and, you know, we're, we're on that phone and, you know, we not able to switch over or whatever like that. So, I mean, that's, it's, you know, that's an extreme example, but it can happen and stuff like that has happened. Oh, some of those things are just incessant about going off. It's the same ones over and over and over and it just wears you out. It wears out your resources. Yeah. And luckily uh, we've got, you know, an ordinance in Nashville. So if it's a, a nuisance alarm, they can actually be cited for it and, and given a fine. They have to maintain their alarm system and everything like that to they where it'll get nasty. Yeah, so we can't. Uh, you know, that that's one thing that us up there we just have to send them up. I mean, that's all we can do. But hopefully, once the officers get out on the scene or the firemen, whatever like that, if it's a nuisance call, they're going to write them up and you know make them get their system fixed, or we just won't go to them anymore. I mean, that's what. It, we have a alarm call from a, one of the fire alarms. If we go out three or four times a day, you know, for, you know, two or three days in a row, fire marshal is going to be like, well, or the district chief, whoever's going to go out there and say, look, we can't do this anymore. Just put their system on test. We're not responding until they can get it fixed and put them back online. I've had them do it. Yeah. It actually happens quite a bit. And while we're on the subject of calls that can really tax your resources, uh, we've got a, a call here for us to listen to, and uh, not to let anybody out in our out in the field, you know, our firefighter brothers and sisters think that we're leaving y'all out of any of these calls because we've done mostly police related. This one's going to be a fire related call. It's from Worcester, Massachusetts, and it's a uh, from a four alarm fire that actually claimed the life of a firefighter. Now the audio quality for the most part in this is actually pretty good. Um, there's going to be some parts in the middle of it. You'll kind of understand when we're, uh, when you hear it, that, uh, it's, it's not the quality of the actual radio itself. It's because these people are talking through their breathing apparatus into their radio and it can sound really muffled when we're up there at dispatch and we hear this, it's really hard to understand even for us. Um, so you really have to listen intently to it to, to, you know, really understand what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Some of it, I can't even understand anyway. Um, but you know, the guys out there and the, they, they're looking inside, they know what's going on. So luckily with a lot of companies out there for a structure fire, they can kind of understand what's happening and, you know, deduce what, uh, 
is actually happening there on the scene and when they're talking about these things. So we're going to play this for you. It's about five minutes long. Uh, it's not too long of a call, and it is from the radio traffic. Uh, we'll go ahead and play it now. Roll tape. Attention all companies. Striking box 15-14. Cross streets, Whipple Street, and Steel Street. For the reported structure fire at 7 Stockholm Street. Uh, all states is fire on the second floor. People still inside, and also a baby on the third floor. Every point of baby on the third floor is unconscious, trying to get him out. We see residents trying to get him out of PD. Residents. Engine 15 on arrival, two and a half story, type 5, heavy fire is showing. Engine 15 on arrival, heavy fire is showing, 102. Striking a second alarm for 7 Stockton Street, engine 6, engine 5, ladder 1, and car 3, V Bravo. Two ladder 5 going second floor, engine 13 going to second floor, fifth front. Second, third floor, priority. Command of 13, you got heavy fire, second floor, Bravo side still. We're still conducting a home research. 13, concentrate on that back room there, on the Bravo side, second floor. You're going to get that out. It's starting to roll up a little up here. Second floor. Engine 2 is on the third floor. Bravo side bedroom is behind up on the third floor, second floor station. We have fire show on the third floor stairwell. Here's there. Oh, my God. 
terms used in uh, this call that may not be familiar with everyone outside of the 911 industry or the firefighters. Um, Beasley, I know you've got uh, one that they actually let off with in this one. I do. In the initial dispatch, uh, you heard the dispatcher say striking box. Now, that's not a term that we use at the Nashville Fire Department, but it is one that they use up in uh, Wooster, Mass., and striking a box is an action performed by the incident commander. Uh, he's the one that's, that's running the scene. Uh, in simple terms, when the IC strikes the box, he or she is saying that the incident will require no additional alarms. Uh, it's just a basic way of saying to everyone monitoring, we think that we can handle it with uh, what we have. And, you know, as you heard on that one, it, it went from something simple at the start to just kind of um, haywire past that. But uh, what we're going to do is paint you a little picture, you know, to kind of give you a an idea of, of how this actually starts uh, when you pull up the scene, the firefighters. So as you were hearing probably through this, uh, this call, they were saying uh, we're on the D side or we're on the A side. If you can imagine a, a house that's on fire, the initial fire engine pulls up to the scene and he drives, you may have seen this before, he doesn't stop right in front of the house. He actually drives past it, and he, he pulls just to the other side of it. The reason they don't do that, there's, there's an actual reason for that. They, uh, we have the walls of the house designated by the actual, uh, you know, like the A side, the B side, D side. The way that it is, if you were to talk about a four-sided uh, structure, that would have an A, B, C, and D side. The very front portion of the house or structure is going to be your A side, and then you go clockwise from there. So if you're looking at it from the street, the left side is going to be the B side. The back of the house is going to be the C side, and the right of the house is going to be the D side. So as these firefighters are pulling up the scene, they get a look at three sides of this structure to see if there's any fire or smoke showing. So they can actually go on, and they'll come on and say there's nothing showing from the A, B, or D side. And that's where you get that from. And also, because it's a standardized thing, as you heard in this call, if someone was to say, you know, we're trapped on the D side, the firefighters know exactly which side to go to. It's it's standard, uh, you know, fair for them to, to say something along that lines. So when the first engine or company that gets on the scene, they will give us what we call a brief initial report or BIR. 
they'll tell the dispatcher and all the other units that are uh, on the way still to the scene what's going on. And I'll give you just a really quick example of what that may be. So you'll have somebody, engine six, I'm on the scene of a residential structure. It's a three level with uh, smoke showing from the A, B, and D side. And we'll be uh, laying out a, you know, a fire line or inch and three quarters, whichever line they're going to put out. And we'll be passing command, or they can say they're established command. And, you know, they immediately start fighting the fire after that. And it's important to note, if they pass command, then the next unit on the scene will be command. And when the incident command structure works like it's supposed to, it it, it's wonderful. The commander on the scene is the only one that's supposed to be talking to the dispatcher at the communication center. And the dispatcher only talks back to the commander. The reason for that is behind the commander, you've got all these firefighters. You may have EMS people on the scene having to deal with people that may have been injured in the fire. And if everybody is talking to the dispatcher, then the commander doesn't know everything that's going on on the scene. So everything needs to filter from those people to the commander who will get in touch with the dispatcher, and it goes back the other way. And it, it really is. It's a wonderful system when it works. But the bigger the mess that you have on the scene, the more apt that you are to have somebody blab off and start talking to the dispatcher and not going through the commander just because of the emotion of the situation, not because it's intentional and they're trying to circumvent the commander. Yeah, and on top of that, uh, we've had, you know, I mean, Nashville's a big city. We've had several huge, huge calls before and that, that involved more than just a few units. Now, to give you an idea, this, this was a structure fire, the call that we listened to. Our initial units that we would have going out to the scene, it's three fire engines, a truck, which is like the, the ladder truck, a uh, fire district, a safety officer, an air truck, and uh, a medic unit. All, they all go out to the scene. That's initially. So that's, that's a lot of equipment to go to a basic house fire. Now, if they actually you know get on the scene and they figure out that it is something that's going up, they can request more units, which in this one they, they had to end up being a four alarm. Now, the alarm structure in other places like Massachusetts, I'm not sure if that's the same way that they work it here, but for in Nashville anyway, the next alarm that they have and each one past that is a duplicate of the first alarm. So all those units I just mentioned, they will go out. Uh, if they call for a second alarm, they'll have the same units again on top. So you'll have twice as many units. And generally at that point, you know, the actual fire assistant chief or someone like that is actually going to go out to the scene because it turns out to be a, a much bigger fire than what they thought. Now, to go a little bit f further past that, if they had something like that, they can they can have different divisions. They could have like a medical branch. They could have the fire branch. They could have a staging branch. There's any number of things that they can have out there on the, the scene with this incident, incident command structure. Now, on this one, you know, we heard that they're – you know, when they actually had their, a little bit of a mayday, it sounded like they had a firefighter that was stuck inside somewhere, couldn't get past a fire. Um, he called for the mayday. You could barely hear him on on the uh, through his mask, but they were trying to 
ascertain where he was exactly. They were telling him, get to a window, get to a window, bust out the window, you know, let us know where you're at. And they, I guess the firefighter just couldn't find a window at that point. I'm, you know, just speculating to this point, but it sounds kind of like that's what happened. And maybe at some point he did find the window and just had to jump out of it or he fell out. I'm not exactly sure what happened, but they said they did have one fall from, I think they said the seaside window on the back, probably on the third floor. And that may have been the firefighter that did not make it from it. I'm not sure. My question would be, was the two in, two out in play here? Since that is an occupational safety and health administration mandate, uh, basically meaning that firefighters never go into a dangerous situation alone and that there are two firefighters outside the hazard to initiate a rescue of the firefighters inside should they get into trouble. Again, I don't know. I don't mean to be critical. I just don't know how we lost the firefighter. Yeah, it's something from the dispatch end. That's one of the things we may never know. I mean, I'm not sure if they've put out a report on something like that, even if they did, unless they put it out to the public, you know, via the news. Us dispatchers, we probably wouldn't find out what actually happened inside that house that that made that happen. It's it's just a, a terrible side of dispatching that something like this could possibly happen, and you never know actually what happens inside. It's just their version of an officer down with the PD side. Exactly, and you know that's you know what we have in, in Nashville uh, for a officer down or officer in distress is uh, code five thousand. They use a more and in Nashville, and I think a lot of the other fire departments, they're kind of going to this thing too, where it's a standard language. It's not not a coding system they use. So when they have a, a firefighter in trouble, they just simply say mayday. And then that's the universal distress signal. So, I mean, if they say that something's going wrong inside, whatever they're doing, um, you know, so one of the firefighters that was on the scene there did start saying mayday, try to give his location. And uh, I guess he wasn't really sure of exactly where it was. And it could be, you know, I'm, I'm again, speculating. I've never been inside a burning house. I'm not a firefighter. I don't know, but, you know, you get in there, you've got smoke everywhere to where you can probably not even see an inch in front of your face. You've got flames going. It's crazy hot inside there. You may have the structure that's falling down around you, and you, you can get turned around real easy. And in addition to this, this is a house that these guys have never, ever been into before. So if you can imagine trying to describe to someone where you are inside of a house, that you've never actually walked into a day in your life. And then on top of that, you add in all the other stuff. I just mentioned the smoke, the flames, the, you know, the structure coming down around you, you simply might not know exactly where you were. So the best you can do is say, you know, I'm on the, the third floor. You know, I, I don't know if I'm next to the D side, you can get turned out and turned around real easy. It could be just, you know, anything. It doesn't take long to get disoriented real quick. Yeah, Exactly. So, you know, that's, again, it's, um, it may not be quite as hard to, to listen to as some of the other calls for us. It is, um, it, it wasn't, um, you know, something, a crime that, that took place, something that was orchestrated by, you know, some crazy person or something like that. This is something that happens every day in America, you know, where firefighters have to go in and, and fight a house fire. The majority of the time they go in and they walk right back out unharmed. But this can happen, and it, it happens quite often. It happens too often. I was on the scene 
of a major warehouse fire once. The temperature was probably somewhere between 20 and 30 degrees outside. Uh, and I was a third of a block away. And it felt like it was 75 degrees outside. I mean, you could feel the intensity of the heat. So all of this, well, I'd rush in the building and I'd pull so-and-so out or I would open that car door and I'd pull so-and-so out if their car was on fire. All that is admirable, but it's not reality. The sheer intensity of the heat on some of these fires is such that you can't get near the structure, much less near the structure to, to pull someone out of it. And that's that's another good point, too, that, you know, uh, you may see, hear somebody say, well, why do they have to have so many firemen out on the scene? Why do they have to have so many fire trucks there? It's because these people that are inside fighting these fires, they're inside these places at 1,200 plus degrees, and they have layers of clothing on, so they're they're burning up really quick on the inside. It it does help their, their you know, fire suits. It's, it helps from a little bit doesn't make it any less hot inside there. So they have to shift these people in and out, you know, get them refreshed, get them water. I mean, we have a, a rehab truck. Actually, we've got a couple of our dispatchers that work on the, the rehab truck as volunteers. They go out to the scene and they've got refreshments. They've got water. They've got everything they need. And, and that's something that if they're, they're on the scene, they don't want to have to think about, oh, you know what? I'm real thirsty now. Did anybody bring any water? No. Well, we've got a rehab truck that goes out to the scene and actually does this to where they have water and everything they need right then and there because they're going to need it. I mean, that's that's all there is. You're inside a burning building like that for any length of time or even standing outside of it. You're going to get hot. You're going to get dehydrated. You're going to sweat a ton. You've got to replenish those those fluids immediately as fast as you can because you don't know. I mean, you'll have maybe five inches. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill companies out there you may burn through all of them and, ha- and after you've been in for a few minutes and come out and try to get cooled down and everything you may have to go right back in and i ask you too to consider just how much weight that the firefighter has on him yeah. just in turnout gear yeah those the suits are heavy they're thick you know I, i'm once again i'm not a firefighter i don't know i've never tried these things on but i can't imagine wearing all these clothes i don't like the hot weather hot weather sucks ass um you know I, i'd prefer cold any time of the, any time of the year over hot because you can always in the cold weather put more clothes on in the hot weather you can't take enough off 
and that's, you know, here in the South, it's 9,500 degrees, somewhere around there, hundred percent humidity. These guys are going inside of a house. Like I said, 1200 degrees. It's literally on fire. They're walking through fire with all this protective gear on them to where it keeps that, that heat of the fire out. But still imagine walking around in the middle of summer with your heaviest coat on and four or five layers underneath it. You're going to sweat just five minutes, just walking down the street. And these guys are, are hauling in the, these heavy hoses, all this other equipment. They're on top of the roof, cutting holes in it to, to vent the structure. There's all kinds of stuff they're doing and they're doing it with these heavy, heavy, you know, fire suits on it, it's it's just i can't even imagine I, i'd hate to be in there i'm glad they're willing to do it I'm, I'm but at the same time i'm glad it's not me and of course back in the day uh, a lot of these fellows were called fire breathers yeah because if you wore any of that stuff you know some of the apparatus that they wear now to to protect them and to save their life and to keep disease from coming on them years from now you know lung wise uh, you were a big sissy yeah. if you wore that stuff back in the day. No, you you go in there, you breathe that stuff. Whatever's coming at you, you breathe it. Because if you don't, you're just a big puss. Yeah, that's what they did. It, and I can't even imagine. Now, it's kind of like the the whole uh, police officer thing. There was a big thing for a while, and you know I've heard several people say it. Like, oh, why are you checking out on your traffic stop? You know, you're just pulling somebody over for speed, and why are you checking out on it? Well, I mean, there's a good reason for it. I mean, you may pull over a thousand people, never have an incident with one of them, but that one time that you decide to pull somebody over and they pull a gun out on you and shoot you, nobody knows where you're at. Yeah. That's, that's the reason that's, that's why you do it. Well, the number of firefighters that have died because of the way that fires were fought back in the old days, it, it's just unbelievable. And it was unnecessary, but that was the way it was done. Yeah. Uh, just them, you know, poking fun at their fellow firefighters for going inside and not, I mean, almost literally taking the heat, you know? So on that, uh, we're going to roll into another fire call and uh, see about this. Now, this is actually a 911 call of a fire, and this is something that we have quite a bit. I mean, I won't say that it's a daily occurrence for us, uh, although we do have a house fire or more every single day in Nashville. This particular type of call, we don't have all the time. I have taken, I, I can't even tell you how many, I mean, dozens and dozens of calls actually just like this. And it, it, they're not they're not easy to hear. Um, we'll go ahead and play it. We'll give you a little bit of commentary afterwards, you know, about the, the actual call itself, the dispatcher, everything involved with it. It's uh, kind of hard to listen to, but... Uh, We'll we'll go ahead and go with it. Roll tape. Oklahoma City Fire Department. There's a fire at twelve oh. There's a fire at twelve oh seven. I'll be thirty seven. What's on fire? What's on fire? House on fire. Is this? Is this your house? No, it's my house. Twelve oh. Okay, listen. Twelve oh seven Northeast forty seven. Yes, her kids are inside. Her kids are what? All her kids are inside. Are inside? Yes. Okay. Well, we've got a lot of help on the way. Are you sure the kids are inside the house? Well, the woman is outside. Okay. Kids how many? Inside. How many kids are inside? How many, how many kids are inside? 
How many? Two. Two? Yes, two. Do you know how old they do you know how old they are? Ma'am, I've got that there's two children. Tell me what those ages are again. We've got a lot of help on the way. Ma'am? Ma'am, I can't understand any. Ma'am? 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 Okay, listen. I want you to calm down and, and try to answer my question, okay? I've got a couple more questions for you, and I've got a lot of help on the way, okay? I'm trying to help her. Okay, I understand. Well, hey, we've got a lot of help on the way, and the kids, how old are they? Listen, how old are the kids? How old are the kids? Four and three? Okay. Hey, Gary. Talk to Pat, dude. Two kids inside, four and three. Imps has been started working house fire. Okay, we've got a lot of help on the way, ma'am. I'm going to go ahead and release the I'm phone with you. Do you. I'm trying to get our mother from the house. And mother okay, from the do, you, do you know what part of the house the kids are in? So that call there, just to give you a little bit of background on it, that happened in Oklahoma City back in 2016. The The hard part for me is that, uh, you know, the thing that initially jumps out at me, and this is something we've, I think we've touched on in a previous episode or two, cell phones do not have a good microphone in them. If you go over a certain volume level on them, they will start breaking up. They will start sounding terribly. So when you call in on 911, and I know that it's it's something that you it's you can't control your own emotion. It's it's hard to to do, especially in a situation like this. If you start screaming on the phone, it's very hard. As you could hear on that call, it's very hard to hear what she was saying. The dispatcher had to repeat over and over again, and a lot of the times, instead of you know the the caller calming down and saying that these people, the, the kids are four and three, she would actually get louder, making it even harder for us to hear. And, you know, that's that, that was the thing that kind of jumped out at me first. Now, uh, uh, on the bad note of it, from the information I've got reading a little bit about this call that they didn't tell in the, the actual phone call itself, the firefighters made it to the scene. The, the bedroom that they said that the kids were in, they went straight through the window went in there to try to find them and they didn't find them in that bedroom. It turned out that the kids were in a bathroom that were, was on the other side of the house. And, uh, those, both those kids, they, they didn't make it out. So, um, you know, they, they both died there on the scene. I personally, and not being critical of him because I don't know what his policies are, uh, would not have terminated that call until 
someone from the fire department arrived on the scene. The primary reason for that is I don't know how much of the structure is on fire. And I don't know whether those two children would have been able to have gotten to a place that would have bought them some time until the fire department got there. There was just too many unanswered things at that point for me to terminate the call. Now, it, it may have well ended up the same way, okay? You and I both know that our training tells us we can't even tell someone to put a fire out that's in a pan on a stove, even if they think they can. Because if something goes wrong, then we've got a huge problem. We can't send them in the house either. You get out of that house, get them away from the danger, not send them back in it. Yeah, we don't want to create more victims, which that is a good possibility would have happened. That woman goes back inside the house and tries to find her kids and she can't find her own way out or you know, a, a beam from the, the ceiling or something like that falls and hits her, that's three people that didn't, didn't make it out instead of two. And the liability on something like that is huge, and you don't want to be on the receiving end of that. No, absolutely not. So that that's, you know, a, again, a terrible call, and that's something that we've heard too many times. Um, I, I don't like hearing stuff like that, but it's part of the job. I mean, you, you've got to deal with it. It's you find out however way you can deal with it, you know, hearing something like that. Um, luckily, most of the time, our firefighters get there on the scene quick enough that they can actually find the, the kids that are inside or the person, whoever it is. It just doesn't always happen. So on this, it, it was difficult start to finish to listen to because of the audio, because of the, you know, the, the actual content of it, just many different reasons. It was difficult to listen to. In, in most of these cases it's not the fire that gets them anyway it's the smoke inhalation yeah and that's that's a very good point i mean that these kids may not have even been touched by the fire we don't know but you know at this point we're again speculating on what actually happened inside that building because you know the the mother or whoever that was that was there was saying that they are inside this bedroom and they went inside that bedroom to check kids weren't there they found them in the bathroom. So we don't know if they left on their own or if they were always there or what happened. We just don't know. I can't even begin to imagine the emotional upheaval that someone is going through knowing that their two children are in that house. Yeah. And you know, it's, you kind of touched on this a little while ago saying, Oh, I, you know, I would, I would run into a burning house. I would, you know, jerk open the door of a, a car that's burning or, you know, just do something that is like that. I've never had that happen before as far as a fire goes, but there's been a few times that I've actually been just a regular citizen, you know, driving home or whatever like that from work or on the way and come upon like a rolled over car or whatever like that. And most people will probably just drive by and they'll call us about it. Yeah, certainly. They'll tell us that there's a, a truck rolled over or whatever like that. And I've actually stopped. I mean, I remember one time it was in the past, probably four or five years, I guess I was on my way to work from home. It was, I don't know. It, it was in the summer. It was, uh, the, the sun was barely up because we start work so early. So mm-hmm. it was probably 
I don't know, maybe five thirty, six o'clock in the morning, something like that. So the sun was barely picking up and, um, it, I was the only car on the road or so I thought until I, I rolled up and I saw this truck just turned over on its side and you know, there was no fire crew. There's no police around there. So I figured that's, this just happened. In fact, I, I remember the wheels still turning on a couple of the, the wheels that were actually not on the ground, but it's rolled over on its side. And I got up there and I, I see through the windshield, there's probably three or four people inside of it. So I jump out of my car and, you know, I, I call 911. I've got them on the phone and so I got this truck rolled over and here I am not thinking about what could actually happen if I climbed up on this truck, but I did anyway. I climbed up on top of it on the side anyway and started looking down in the cab of the truck and, you know, there was three people inside when I got there. It was a, a man, a wife, and their daughter. Their daughter was, she was a teenager, but, and the man and the wife up in the front seat, they were, they were fine. The, the daughter in the back seat had broken her arm. And, uh, you know, I just, I gave them our standard instructions. Don't move, try not to move around at all. You know, we're waiting for the fire department to get here. But, you know, in that instance, there's no telling what could have happened. I, I'd be on the side of that truck and the thing roll over and catch me underneath it. But I, I wasn't thinking that way. I just, our first instinct on something like this is to go and try to help. So if, if I was in that situation, I would like to think that I would run into the burning building myself and, and actually, you know, try to save the kids that are there. If they're my kids, obviously I'd, I'd die trying to, trying to get in there to save them. You can't say that about everybody. I mean, not everybody has that. Most people are instinctively going to try to help. The other side of that is if you don't understand what you're doing, you can make matters dramatically worse. Uh, I knew a fellow who had had an accident. Uh, he was a, uh, a postman and the vehicle started smoking. Someone or a few people grabbed him pulling him out of the vehicle quadriplegic mm. for the rest of his life. Yeah. Uh, I was on the scene, rolled up to a motorcycle accident. Uh, the individual was lying in the grass. Uh, I think it was her boyfriend that pulled up right behind me, comes running up into the grass. Luckily, there was an RN that had gotten there before I did, and, of course, I had my uniform on. He comes barreling up that hill because that's one of his, you know, that's one of his people, you know, girlfriend, wife, whatever she was. And his first thing was to run for that helmet and say, we've got to get her helmet off. I said, no, you don't touch that helmet because we don't know what her condition is. You know, I had enough medical training and the person that was there, the RN, she had enough medical training to know you can't move them. You don't know whether she's broken her neck, broken her back. And if neither one of us had been there and he had did what he wanted to do, well, it could have been a bad situation there. We don't know. But what I do know is what he was going to do was not going to be the proper way to handle it. And it just happened to work out well. So... You know, you've got your good Samaritans that, that mean all the good in the world, but all the good in the world is of no good if you're going to put the person or the victim in worse shape. Now, the law is going to back you up 
you know, the Good Samaritan law where you, you've attempted to help, but it might not help the victim. Yeah. And, and actually, uh, as we were just talking about these, you know, running into fire calls like that, I actually, um, remembered, uh, a little story and, you know, we, we talk about our old school all the time and this, this actually wasn't too long ago. I, I say not too long ago. It could have been 10 years ago. Now I, I don't know. I can't remember getting old like that, but, um, we actually had a, one of our uh, police sergeants and he was, um, he was going downtown to headquarters, probably turning paperwork. Mm-hmm. And, um, on his way down there, somebody was starting to, to wave him down. He was just getting off the interstate and it was over, you know, kind of East Nashville area. And he was going to cross back over the river to go downtown to headquarters. Well, when he got off the interstate, he had somebody flagging him down and they told him there was a house on fire. So the radio traffic of it was, and, and the thing about this, uh, this particular sergeant, I, I don't know him personally. I, I heard from another dispatcher that he may have had throat cancer at, at some point. So he really talked in a monotone voice and he almost sounded like Eeyore. So he, when he actually come on over the radio in his normal voice, he didn't get excited or anything like that. That's, that's the way it was. He says, dispatch, I've got a citizen that flagged me down here that says there's a house on fire. I've pulled up on the scene and there is smoke and flames coming out of the building. And they said, there's people inside. I'm going in. And that's all it was. And he ran inside that, that building and helped a couple of people out of it. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't know the details past that. Uh, cause he was, uh, luckily the fire department got there really quick. It was right down the street from one of the halls. And I guess they probably saw the smoke, but the fire department got there immediately and they, they did their thing, but he, with no fire apparatus at all, no breathing, uh, you know, apparatus, no fire suit ran into a burning building and helped some people out. Well, sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. Yeah. You don't have time to think about it. You just act. Yeah. That's it, it's instinct. And I think that, you know, you say there's a little bit of instinct, but I think some of it is built for us. We didn't come into this, this job thinking, oh, well, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to run into a burning building. I'm going to talk this person out of suicide. You know, I'm nobody comes in thinking that they, we, we don't think about the kind of calls we're going to have until it actually happens and we, we have to go through it. And then, you know, the next day comes the next day after that over and over again, for days, weeks, months, years, we're doing this this thing that probably when we walked in the front door, we didn't know what we were getting into. Well, you just react because you know if you don't, bad things can very well and do happen. Yeah, and they do. So, in speaking with that, uh, we've kind of hopefully taken our, I don't know how we'd say it, <laughs> Are, are way away from the, the really bad calls here. And we've got a couple other things we want to talk about, maybe lighten up the mood a little bit, like we have done in the past to try to uh, finish out the episode. And we're going to start doing that right now. You and I were talking on a previous podcast about it not being out of the realm of possibility for us to get a call on 911 involving our own family. Now, Having said that, it's time for everybody to gather around because I'm going to tell you a horrid story about the great murder on Stockle Street. 
Now, Stockel Street is a street over in East Nashville, not the greatest part of town. <laughs> and at this particular house that I'm going to be discussing, my grandmother, who was uh, elderly, she's passed on now, lived in one side. And my six-year younger brother, who we will refer to in this story as dumbass, <laughs> lived in the other side. Now, let me set the scene for you. It was kind of a spooky night, about 1030. Now, he's getting ready to take a shower because he works the midnight shift at an IT company. It's storming outside, thundering, and the lightning is flashing so often you'd think it was paparazzi taking the picture. <laughs> so he's getting in the shower. And it's one of these, you may know, it's a, it's a stand-up shower, what, three, three foot by three foot? Yeah, a little stand-up, uh, stand-alone shower. Yeah. Yeah. So he gets in there, turns on the water, starts lathering up, dee-dee-dee-dee-dee, and all of a sudden, the water turns as red as blood. And then you hear, <laughs> jumps out of the shower, soaking wet, runs out of the bathroom, tries to make a turn in the hallway, but he's five foot eight, two hundred and fifty, and wet. So you hear, boom! He hit that floor. Probably sounded like a nuclear explosion. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the other side of the house, my grandmother, who's awake is sitting on her bed, saying, Lord have mercy, what in the world has happened in this house? <laughs> Back to the other side of the house, he finally gets up off of the floor, thinks better about it, gets something wrapped around him, and continues his flight into the other side of the house where my grandmother is. She says he's running through the house trying to get to her, saying, there's been a murder in the house. There's been a murder in the house. Somebody's been killed. <laughs> he gets to her, and she says, honey, what in the world is wrong? I'm telling you there's been a murder in the house. And she says, well, why do you think there's been a murder in the house? Hell, I don't know. I'm not a damn detective. I just know there's blood all over the shower, and the law needs to be out here. Yeah. So she gets on the telephone and calls 911. Well, you already know who's on the other side of the phone. Well, of course, yeah. Yeah, moi. Mm -hmm. So I pick up the phone, answer it 911 Beasley, and she says, uh, Ricky? And I said, oh, God, what's happened out there? Mm -hmm. And she said, well, your brother? Notice she didn't say my grandson. Because mm -hmm. she don't want any part of this. She already knows it's going to be something crazy. Yeah, it's like so the, whole, now, the whole kid thing where you, you know, your kid does something wrong and it always, it's, it's always the other partner. You know, oh, your kid did this right. when you're talking to your spouse. Right. So uh, your brother is jumping up and down, hollering about, there's been a murder in the house. And I said, well, why does he think there's been a murder in the house? She said, honey, I've asked him. I don't know. And then she gets real close to the phone and she says, uh, listen, I think he may be taking that dope. 
<laughs> he said, I heard what you said. I'm not on no damn dope. I'm not on no drugs. I know what I seen. We need the law out here. She said, honey, could you just send him out here? He's starting to scare me. Of course, I'm thinking to myself, hell, he's starting to scare me. So I go ahead and send the call up. Send, ask to send two officers out there. So they both pull up. He takes them back there. Of course, he's tore all to pieces. He goes back and he's showing them on the, on the floor of the, of the shower. There is, in fact, little red droplets. So one of them thought better about it and had the brains to have one of our people call the emergency number at the water company mm -hmm. to see what kind of tomfoolery has happened out at that house. Well, they didn't have any trouble at all, at all explaining it. They said, well, it's not that unusual. In a lot of these neighborhoods, we'll take red dye and we'll inject it into the water main to check it for leaks. And then we'll make sure that we've notified everyone in the neighborhood you know, by putting a little leaflet on the door or something because you don't want them to turn the water on between something o'clock and something o'clock and have all that mess coming through the faucet because it's not going to be fit to do anything with. Well, the officer told him what their findings were. Well, he felt like a damn fool. <laughs> of course he did. Okay. Now, for all of you listening, now just, just I, I want you to think about this for just a moment to show you where the dumb acidness comes in on all this. <laughs> now, if someone had indeed been killed in that house or there had been a murder or there was a body in the in the basement. That was one of the things that he said. Oh, there's somebody been killed in the basement. They would have had to put the body in the the the, the water pipes. How in the world? Right. How in the world would blood have gotten in the pipes, which may have been in the basement, and they come up through the house? But how would it have gotten in the pipes and definitely had enough pressure to get out of the shower head? Yeah. Yeah. Well, my uncle who he's passed on to one of the funniest guys you'll ever meet in your life. And he was a Jehovah's Witness preacher, very stoic guy. But when he told you a joke, I mean, you were, you were just lying in the floor, just, just dying. Well, I told him the story because him and I got along real good. Of course, Mark, he hated him. And he didn't hate Mark because he was a pastor, but he did think he was a crook. Okay, that's debatable. <laughs> but, but, but I told him the story, and he loved it. He loved it. At all the family gatherings, the more the merrier. He'd get everybody in there, and he'd say, Now, y'all gather around now and hear the sordid tale about the great murder on Stockle Street. <laughs> Of course, Mark would be in the background going, yeah, laugh it up, laugh it up. It's really funny, isn't it? <laughs> and all of you out there, you know what I'm talking about. Most families have at least one person, one person who is just the dumbass of the family who never thinks anything through. And they'll be the first one to call the 911. <laughs> they will, too. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. That's a good one.
And I've got another good one for you, too. You were talking about alarm calls at the first part of the show. Yeah. Now, this was an alarm call, too. This was, oh, God, this has been years ago, and it involved you. Oh, I think I know what you're talking about. You're going to go with this one. Well, I was sitting on the radio, and I get a call to a commercial uh, burglary location. It's an alarm. And I look at the place of business, and for those of you out there that know the lady's name, Dolores. That's what it said, Dolores Church. (laughs) And And I'm sitting there looking at it, and I said... Who calls the church Dolores? That don't even make any sense. So I sit there and I kind of looked at it, and then it dawned on me. So I picked up the local line, and I called you on the phone, and I said, uh, about this church yeah. named Dolores. <laughs> um, and you said, well, what, what about it? And I said, well, is that what they told you? Yeah, that's what they told me. Well, it turned out that the person who called the alarm in had a real strong southern accent. And when they called it in, they said, "Uh, I have an alarm at Dolores Church. (laughs) I said, you reckon they might have been talking about the Lord's Church and you misunderstood it? And that's exactly what he did then, too. He just busted out laughing. (laughs) I just hung up the phone and put it out as the Lord's church. Well, on that note, I think we're going to have to get the hell out of here for the night. I can't do this too much more. Uh, Yeah, I don't need to be telling anything else that's going to put us both in a penitentiary. Yeah, (laughs) that's what's going to happen. All right, well, for Music City 911 tonight, I'm Brandon Hall. And I'm the free, for right now, Rick Beasley. (laughs) Take care, guys. Y'all have a good one. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.